scripture reading is from Psalm 32, well-known psalm of repentance. Read the whole psalm, 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Would you turn then, please, to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, Matthew 4. the text for the sermon, verses 12 to 17, and after that I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 15 and article 2. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land, those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then from the Westminster Confession, chapter 15 and article 2, hopefully in the bulletin.
And uh, as you may recall, the previous Article 1 was talking about repentance unto life. And then Article 2 continues on that subject of repentance. By it, that is by repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavouring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we often fall. When we do so, Lord, will you pick us up again when we stumble and falter? And will you also use the preaching of your word to put us back on track again, especially this afternoon on the track of repentance? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, I mentioned the other week that true repentance is not the same thing as worldly remorse. And no doubt that's something that you've heard said many times over the years. It's a common theme among preachers because it's a common theme in the scripture. Even remorse with tears, as we saw the other week with Esau in Hebrews 12 verse 17 and the background of that in Genesis, even remorse with tears is not acceptable to the Lord if the motive is not right. Motive matters. That comes to any spiritual exercise and certainly to repentance. I trust those of us here this evening would say that we believe in the importance of repentance and we would say that we practice it. If we are willing to say that, then it's good to ask ourselves the question, why do we do so? What are the reasons? So that we get at our motives as well as the fact that we are offering this repentance to the Lord and seeking his face, but to examine our motives in it. Well, the Lord Jesus gives one reason for repentance in our text, perhaps not one we would have quickly selected as a major reason or motive for repentance, but nevertheless, it is an important one. And uh, it's one that actually also implies a bunch of other reasons that are summed up in the reason that he gives. We will uh, look at that reason, but we need to do a certain amount of consideration of the passage before we get to that point. So we will be looking in these three headings, first of all, at why the Lord went to Galilee. Secondly, what he preached in Galilee. And thirdly, why many listened in Galilee, and as a result of that, many repented. The first two points help us to get some idea of the background to what the Lord Jesus says when he gives his reason for repenting. We can understand then that call to repentance better, but that will come in the third point. Why the Lord went to Galilee, what he preached in Galilee, and then uh, we come to the Matters dealt with in the Westminster chapter 15 in the third point, why many listened in Galilee. 
In the first place then, and this is part of that background, Galilee might seem to be a rather unusual place for the Lord to go to commence his public ministry. Surely the great king, as he comes into his office and he begins to exercise the ministry of that office, surely he would start off in Jerusalem, start off in the centre, the centre of Israel really, the place with the temple. He'd finished all his preparations for that ministry by this stage. He had finished uh, providing the credentials for it in a sense and the first three chapters of Matthew deal with that. But now in chapter 4, the ministry begins in earnest. Uh, Why did he not head for the big city? Why Galilee? Galilee in some ways is the least likely place that you would expect the Lord Jesus to start because it was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles. There are a lot of Gentiles there in Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And it was so far from the centre, from Jerusalem. And it was a very poor area as well. And because of the large Gentile population, it was one that was greatly influenced by pagan ideas and pagan immorality. Well, in answer to that question, I want to suggest three likely factors. And the first one has to do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had really stirred up a hornet's nest, as uh, we know from the Gospel accounts. He had uh, really stirred up Herod especially, but not only Herod, he had also stirred up the Pharisees. And no doubt the Pharisees were emboldened by the fact that Herod had just arrested John the Baptist. Jesus had also come to the attention of the Pharisees. We know that from John chapter 2. So by this stage, the Pharisees were already troubled by Jesus' beginning of his ministry, and they were already beginning to be offside with him. And so it is often suggested that one of the reasons why Jesus left, why Matthew's Gospel puts it this way, that when Jesus heard that Herod had been taken into custody, he went far away from Jerusalem... Why? Because, as it suggested, uh, this was not yet the right time for an all-out confrontation between Jesus and the leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, A second reason I would suggest that the Lord Jesus went to Galilee, and it is precisely for this reason that it was a place of poverty and need and darkness. Verse 16, quoting from Isaiah 9, verse 2, shows this. It shows what a place of darkness it was. And it prophesied about these people who were sitting in darkness, who were sitting in the shadow of death. People, in other words, who were morally and spiritually darkened, depraved and without hope. And the Lord Jesus came to them with a gospel that was meant precisely for people such as that. A gospel that was meant for the poor, the poor in spirit. He came precisely to open the eyes of those who were darkened and in spiritual blindness. His ministry meant precisely coming to bring life to those who were dead and to bring hope to those who were hopeless. So from that point of view, Galilee was an excellent place to go to. He did not come into this world as a worldly king with pomp and ceremony. He did not come to the capital where you would expect such a king to come. But he came to Galilee. 
just as he came to a stable in Bethlehem and across in Jerusalem. Coming in such a way that what the world counts as poor and weak and lacking in wisdom, but then he shows his great and infinite power all the more by bringing such a great light and bringing such great life and such hope to those who were in the most degraded state and doing so while himself displaying the least outward glory as far as the world is concerned. Moreover, in doing so, he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 had prophesied that these people in Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali historically, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, would see a great light. And that was talking about the coming of the Messiah. He is the great light. Matthew observes that Jesus went there to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Third reason I want to suggest that this was also a foreshadowing of the, event, of the eventual spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we know that Jesus came primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15 verse 24. Nevertheless, through his ministry at various points, he gives clear notice that the gospel was going to spread from there to the ends of the earth. And he demonstrates this by where he goes at the start of his public ministry. He goes to Galilee of the Gentiles and he ministers to Samaritans there and he ministers to Gentiles there as well as to Jews. Showing at the start of his ministry, foreshadowing the fact that the gospel would go to the, through the whole world, to the Gentiles as well. And he does it also at the end of his ministry. Matthew 28 verse 19, where the Great Commission in, uh, makes it clear that the church is going to go to the ends of the earth, teaching and baptising. And that, I would suggest, is one of the reasons why Jesus goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, Matthew actually spends about 17 chapters describing that ministry, the Lord's Galilean ministry. And the fact that he spends so long shows that this is a significant period in the Lord's ministry, going to that particular area. Well, that is the where, where the events of our text are located. But we consider in the second place what the Lord preached in Galilee. There are two main elements in what he preached, according to verse 17. The first of those elements is that he called the people to repent. And the second of those elements is that he gave the reason why they ought to do so, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll deal with those two elements in what he preached. First of all, the message, the call to repentance. And that was not a new message. It was completely in line, in common with what the Old Testament prophets taught. That they called the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, to repentance. In repentance and rest you will be saved. Isaiah 30 verse 15 or Malachi 3 verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you. So that was the burden of the Old Testament prophet's message, or part of it. Also the burden of John the Baptist's preaching. 
In fact, in Matthew 3, verse 2, John preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly the same words at that point that Jesus says. Clearly, in the Lord Jesus using those words, so soon after John's ministry, he is demonstrating continuity with John the Baptist, who in some ways is the last of the Old Testament prophets, though he lived in the New Testament time. He's the last of the Old Testament style prophets. And he comes with this message, repent for the kingdom is at hand, in continuity with the Old Testament saying, repent because the Messiah is coming. Now John says, repent because the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus begins his ministry saying the same thing. And yet at the same time, the language of, and the message of John and Jesus was not identical. John the Baptist, in line with that Old Testament type of, prophecy, of, uh, of message of preaching, emphasised judgment on apostate Israel. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Matthew 3 verse 10. The Messiah is coming with his winnowing fork. It's in his hand and he's, he's going to clear the threshing floor and burn the chaff. Matthew 3 verse 12. Though it's true to say that John certainly spoke of the Messiah uh, gathering his wheat into the barn at the same time. <coughs> and that is uh, certainly a message of grace and salvation alongside the morning of judgment. But in John's preaching, the judgment is given the greater emphasis. The Lord Jesus, when he came calling for repentance... He certainly didn't deny the coming judgment. And in fact, of all the preachers whose sermons are recorded in the Bible, uh, Jesus spoke more about hell and judgment than anybody else. That's fairly well known. Nevertheless, when the Lord Jesus began to preach, there was an emphasis in his preaching that went beyond what John had said. It wasn't contradictory, but it went further than what John had said, especially in emphasis he began to preach the gospel especially as good news, which is what gospel means. The good news of the kingdom. He emphasised the blessedness of the kingdom, Matthew 5. He emphasised the joy of the great and gracious reward that is waiting for God's people in Matthew 5 verse 12, for example. Because and the reason he did this was because in his coming, the light was now finally dawning on Jews and Gentiles living in darkness. That also explains the other element in Jesus' preaching compared to John's. This message that the reason for repenting is because the kingdom is at hand. And both John and Jesus preached that. But again, there is a slight difference in emphasis in it. John said it because he knew the Messiah was about to come and start his work. And therefore John said, he, he's coming. He's at hand. Repent. Jesus said it because he, the Messiah, had come and was already beginning his work. And so the Lord Jesus in his preaching about these things adds in an element that isn't quite, it go, again, goes a little bit further than what John said, John the Baptist because Jesus also said, as per Luke 11, verse 20, the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. So John says, the kingdom's at hand. Jesus says that too. But Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of God is not only at hand. It's not only almost here. It is now here. It has come upon you because the Messiah is now here and begins his work. What did the Lord, and to some extent John, though no doubt the Lord knew more about these things than John did, what did they mean by the kingdom of God? Well, they meant that the, and this is one way of putting it, I have referred to it before, but uh, it's an insight that uh, some Reformed theologians have had in relatively recent times, which is quite an important one, and that is that uh, the coming of the kingdom means that the heavenly realities that one day are going to be all in all with absolutely no opposition to it whatsoever, that, that future kingdom of God, the future reality where Christ is all in all, breaks into this present evil age with the coming of Christ, with the coming of the King. That's an important point. Uh, when we talk about the, the effect of that, the the future realities, the heavenly realities, breaking into this present age, what that means is that when Christ comes, he begins a, a rule on earth as well as in heaven, a rule in which he rules his people by word and spirit in this world as well as in the next, over against all of the work that Satan is doing to try and undermine that. And so as his kingdom grows in this world, the work of Satan to try and control this world is pushed back more and more. It's done in the face of Satan's opposition and all those who, who side with him. And so some have described the kingdom of God as everything that God is doing in this world through the Lord Jesus Christ. What he does in our hearts, what he does in the life of the church, what he does through evangelism, what he does through Christian schools and families, everything he's doing throughout this world to push back that false claim of leadership of the world by Satan. And he will keep doing so that he keeps doing so until the day his kingdom is all in all. Those are the kind of things that are meant when we talk about the kingdom of God coming with the coming of Christ. And you see, this is important. We need to understand this, what the kingdom is and how it comes with Christ. We need to understand that in order to understand why Jesus says you better repent because here is the kingdom now. Here it is. It's come. You need to understand it because the coming of that kingdom implies the defeat of all opposition from Satan and his allies through what Christ does in his coming. We need to understand that the coming of the kingdom means that the work of salvation is completed through the work of Christ on earth. And we need to understand that the coming of the kingdom means the king is here and he is now ready and he was ready when he came at this time as described in the gospels. The king was ready to reveal himself on earth in this way, not just in heaven, but also on earth in this particular way, in the presence of Christ. And so we come to verse 17. With that background, we come to verse 17. And also, this is the part that deals with the Westminster 
15, Article 2. The reasons why we ought to repent. Those reasons that are tied up with the coming of the kingdom. That's our third and final point. Why many listened in Galilee. They listened to the preaching of the Lord Jesus and therefore they repented. And this background of what it means that the kingdom has come helps us to to understand how this is a reason for repentance. I said at the start that motive matters. Well, this is one way of stating the only proper motive for repentance because we know that the kingdom is not only at hand but it has also come upon us with the coming of Christ. That is a proper motive for repentance. How so? Well, I want to bring in some of those things we've seen about the nature of the coming of the kingdom and bring that in in more detail to how we and why we repent. Because it's helpful to understand that when we talk about the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom as a a matter of Jesus preaching it and, uh, and also, for that matter, the apostles, we can see that it's a kind of summary term. It's one of those terms you could say that the preaching of Jesus is summed up by saying he preached the kingdom. You could say the preaching of the Apostle Paul was summed up by saying the Apostle Paul preached the kingdom, Acts 28 verse 31. The scripture uses it as a summary of the preaching of Christ and of the Apostles. But you see that preaching of the kingdom, putting it that way, is a summary term that includes a whole lot of other stuff. That those things that are involved in the coming of the kingdom. So let's unpack that a little bit and see what that has to do with repentance. First of all, the coming of the kingdom means that the removal of opposition is imminent. Judgment on the wicked, included in that, is imminent. The Lord Jesus could return at any moment because he has come the first time and finished his work on earth. Because of that, he could come back at any moment and wind up this age, roll it up like a scroll, this present evil age, in order to replace it with only that future heavenly reality, that heavenly age, to replace it with that. And in doing so, bring all flesh to judgment. And that's important for us to keep in mind. Do you want to be found resisting the kingdom of God? Resisting the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that he returns, which could be at any time? It's relevant for repentance. And it's a proper motive for repentance. And uh, relating to that also, the Lord Jesus is, he is already defeated in his coming. He has already defeated the work of Satan so that the the final removal of Satan from influence in this world, throwing him into the abyss, that's absolutely guaranteed. And you could say, you could put it this way, as far as repentance is concerned, do you want to be found on the day that the Lord Jesus returns, siding with a loser, siding with Satan, or siding with the Lord Jesus? Related to that, the coming of the kingdom means that The king has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And who would want to rebel against the rule of the great king? 
And as part of that, who would want to refuse? When the great king calls on you to repent, who would want to say, oh, I'm not going to do that? I don't care. He could be the greatest king in the world. I don't... Who would want to be found saying that? The king has come. And we ought to listen to every word he speaks, including this call to repentance. And then also a third thing. The, these are the three main things that we've seen with the, this expression, the coming of the kingdom. The coming of king, the kingdom speaks of the pouring out of mercy and light and blessing and the joy of salvation. Jesus, great emphasis in his preaching, which added on to the things that the prophets said in the Old Testament and which John the Baptist said, which came with greater emphasis than ever before in the day that Jesus came and grace was outpoured, the day of grace and salvation. So that's another thing tied up with the coming of the kingdom. And that's another motive to repent out of gratitude. Gratitude for such great mercy. And also out of that desire that is created in us by God, that desire to be the recipients of such a wonderful gift. And again, who would want to be in that position that you say, here we have this fantastic offer of forgiveness to those who by God's grace turn from their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and who would want to spit that back in his face, so to speak. You see, it is only because because of these truths that are tied up with the coming of the kingdom that we can even repent in the first place. We wouldn't be able to if these things were not true. And uh, it's only because of these that having repented, we can know for sure that we are forgiven, that our sins are forgiven. Now, I want to note how these various motives come out in the Westminster in chapter 15 too. And they all come out in some way in this chapter, in this article. First of all, there is a reminder of the danger. The danger that our sin presents in the face of the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God, the God who, is, who has been offended by our sins. And by also the awareness... It's also another factor in our repentance, the awareness of how horrible our sins are in God's sight. And that's very much tied up with the fact that God is coming as judge, demonstrating that the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world, demonstrating his hatred of sin. And uh, that's that aspect of repenting because of judgment. But the fear of consequences is never an adequate motive in itself, if that's all it is. Uh, you could have somebody who, you could have a, uh, a, uh, a criminal who's considering committing a particular offence, and he may think to himself, well, there's a good chance I'll get caught if I go ahead with this job tonight, so I'm not going to do it, because I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of what happens if I get caught. And yet another man will look at the same situation and say, okay, well, that doesn't stop me from doing wrong. It just means I better make sure I'm not caught. Fear of consequences in in itself is not an adequate motive. And that's why the Westminster says, not only. It does talk about that concern about Judgment Day. But it says not only that. That's not the only reason we repent. But also... Because we see our sin is opposed to God himself. 
And it's because of what we know of God and what we think about God that we repent. We consider his holy nature and we consider his righteous law. And it is the nature of God and the nature of his word that we have come to love. And therefore, we do not want to sin and we do want to repent when we find out that we have sinned. And then a third reason, so that's to do with the nature of the king, you might say. And then a third reason, the Westminster adds, is also upon the apprehension of Christ's mercy. That other factor tied up with the coming of the kingdom. That mercy to those who repent. In other words, the motive of gratitude and the desire to show honour to the God who has shown us such great and infinite mercy. All of which, all of those things are embraced in that call to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and has come upon us. Those who have this mix of motives grieve over their sins. They hate them. They intend and they try, with the Lord's help, to turn from all their sins as they become aware of them to the Lord so that they may walk with him, in other words, close to him, rather than to be found standing against him and against all of the ways of his commandments. That's our desire, I take it, as God's people. And that is the direction that we have been set upon. But we know that our execution of those things lags far behind. Which underscores all the more how great is the mercy of God in Christ. That despite the fact that we do not execute even these things, these fundamental things, to do with the coming of Christ, the coming of the King and the Kingdom, even so, through Christ, God shows mercy to us when we turn to him in repentance. And that, in turn, does not lead us to give up on repentance. It doesn't lead us to apathy or to despair. But rather, it increases our desire for the Lord's help so that we may walk more closely with him than we have been even up to this point. Our failure far from leading us to inaction, should lead us to redoubled effort by God's grace to turn from our sins and to him and to walk in his ways. Uh, you know, failure at a certain task has uh, different effects on different people. You get one student who bombs out in an exam and the failure makes him say, I don't get it and I'm never going to get it, so what's the point of even studying? It has the opposite effect on another student. And the other student says, I failed this time. That means I've got to try even harder. I've got to work even more at it. So for some, failure leads one way. For some, it leads the others. In the case of the Christian, it does lead in a good direction, but not simply that we try and redouble our efforts because our repentance is not at the end of the day based on it doesn't have success, if we may put it that way, because of our efforts. It is not simply a matter of us trying a little bit harder. For the Christian, that failure motivates us, or rather the mercy that we know of God, even in our failures, that motivates us to seek the Lord more. Because the ability to repent 
the ability to grow and improve doesn't come from us, it comes from him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you grant that we may truly repent of our sins and that we would uh, fall back on no unacceptable and worldly substitutes such as mere human remorse. Grant that we may repent not only because of the imminence of judgment and even when that is a factor, Father, may it be because not because we're afraid so much of what happens would happen to us but even more so because we do not want anything to keep us from your presence and your fatherly favour. But also, Father, may it be because we recognise that you are our rightful Lord and you have a right to call for our repentance as you do for our obedience. And may it also be because we do not want to despise the mercy that you have shown through your Son to those who turn to you through him and turn from their sins. We pray it in his name. Amen. The Lord pardons all our iniquity fully. And that uh, mercy, as I've been saying, is a major reason why we do repent out of heartfelt gratitude as well as relief. Sold to hymnal 272. We will stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 272.
After the blessing, we sing as our doxology number 309, stanzas 1 and 5. And uh, as we hear the pronouncement of that blessing upon us, uh, we just sang about our gloom being dispelled. Well, uh, if the blessing of God, as uh, stated in the scripture, does not dispel that gloom, then uh, what could? Hear the blessing in that light. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.